to you. Great to see you all here this morning. And as Alex said, if you're new here or visiting, you're very, very welcome. Uh, and if you are new or visiting or haven't got any plans for lunch, uh, do join us uh, in the foyer straight afterwards. Um, we'd love to catch up with you and help connect you with whichever part of the body of Christ it is that the Lord is calling you to. Um, so uh, it's great to see you here this morning. My name is Neil. I'm married to the wonderful Kate. Together we attempt to serve this amazing community of faith here, the Southwest London Vineyard, which is a real privilege and honor for us. And over the past few weeks, we've been doing a series looking at the Old Testament. And in light of the call on our lives from Matthew chapter 22 and Matthew chapter 28 that we looked at at the start of the year a, a few weeks ago, how it is that we might read the Old Testament and engage with it in such a way that will help us uh, love God and love one another more. And one of the reasons that we're digging into the Old Testament is, you know, because over the past however long, you know, we repeatedly come across people here at Southwest London Vineyard who genuinely struggle with certain parts of the Old Testament. Now, I know that's not all of you, but there are some people here who genuinely struggle with certain parts of the Old Testament. And so unless we throw the baby out with the bathwater and end up relegating the Old Testament to some ancient, irrelevant text, we wanted to try at least to explore some of the very many ways in which this um, collection of books is, is actually part of an integrated whole narrative arc of scripture which is telling one unified story that all leads and points to Jesus and last week we started to look at some of the tools if you like that might be helpful for us as we read through the Old Testament and as we encounter as no doubt we will some of the more challenging aspects of this collection of books and last week uh, if you were here we took a quick look at the flood from Genesis and how irrespective of how you interpret the details of the story in terms of how much water and how many animals you know really what we were looking at is how it might be that the flood narrative is telling us something absolutely central and vital about the nature of God and the coming of God's kingdom all expressed in and through the person of Jesus. And again, just by way of underlining what we said last week, when it comes to understanding the scriptures, especially the Old Testament, we really need Jesus. We need Jesus. We need his Holy Spirit to open our minds so that we can understand the scriptures. These are not just words on a page. These are words of life. This is no ordinary book, and it's going to require some spiritual revelation and some divine intervention if we're even going to begin to get our heads around it. So first and foremost and above everything else, we need Jesus. We need the Spirit of God to fill us and equip us and empower us to read his word. And so every time that we come to open the scriptures, uh, whether that's at the start of our day or at the end of our day or in the middle of our day or anywhere in between, before we read a word, let's get into the practice of inviting the Spirit of God to come and ask in the words of Luke chapter 4, uh, that the Spirit of God would open our minds so that we might understand the Scriptures. 
So let's start there before we go any further. Spirit of the living God, we welcome your presence here. We thank you for your presence. We thank you for the scriptures. And we ask that by your Holy Spirit, you would come and you would open our hearts and our minds to understand the scriptures. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So that's the first thing. By far the most important thing this morning is that we need Jesus. Uh, This week, I foolishly, I foolishly, foolishly promised to take a look at Jonah. Uh, um, Again, just to be clear, not for the purposes of disrupting or disputing your take on this familiar story. uh, Rather, just to kind of hopefully equip us with some ways of looking at it that maybe will give us some more context and some more insight into some of the conclusions that we may have reached about what it means. And remember, all we're trying to do is to invite, possibly, a fresh perspective on something that we think is, is very familiar. You know, the story of Jonah is pretty familiar. Because although this, if you, if you read it this week, you know this story, um, this book, is, it's only four chapters long. And they're actually short chapters. Um, and the story, as we said, is, is probably very well known to all of us. The reality is the whole narrative of Jonah is, is pretty complex. It's really not straightforward. And I discovered that like this week as I was preparing. And I realized that we actually need a 10-week sermon to even get close to this, uh, sermon series to get close to this. Um, so I'm really not going to do justice in like 10, 15 minutes. But we'll have a go. And my first question to you guys before we attempt to get into it is, is, it's a rhetorical question, you don't have to answer it out loud. Um, what do you think the story of Jonah is about? What do you think the story of Jonah is about? Because whether we've read it recently or not, as I said, it's likely to be one of those narratives that's deeply embedded in our hearts and minds. Many of us will know it inside out. Or at least we may think we do. And alongside and need for Jesus as we engage and grapple and wrestle with the Old Testament, there's a question I think that needs to be asked, and that's around over-familiarity. Over-familiarity. Many of us would have grown up either through school or Sunday school, you know, well-versed. Well-versed in the stories of the Old Testament, from the, from the flood, I'm not going there again, don't worry, from the flood to the walls of Jericho, that could be another week maybe, uh, from the Prince of Egypt to Joseph and his technicolor dream coats. Uh, We know all these things, but the question, I guess, is might some of this familiarity actually be a hindrance to us actually coming to grips with and getting to grips with the narrative that's actually in front of us, the actual words in the book. And this morning, I want to take a very brief whistle-stop tour of the story of Jonah, just to perhaps give us a moment to reflect on what this story might actually be all about, and then how that might prompt us to perhaps take some time to reflect on some of the other stories that we're very, very familiar with in the Old Testament that we may not have, in fact, actually taken a good look at in a very, very long time. So fasten your seatbelt. We're going to go. So back to my first question. What do you think the story of Jonah is about? Well, it would be pretty reasonable to conclude that it's about a guy called Jonah, like that much I think we can agree. Uh, he's a prophet. He's called by God. God asks Jonah to go to Nineveh. You know, Jonah man jazz, that famous city of sin. I'm not going to sing it. Uh, but to go to Nineveh, 
city of sin to tell them the error of their ways. Jonah, for some reason, Jonah really doesn't want to do that. And so he disobeys God. And rather than going to Nineveh, he, he runs or, or sails um, in completely the opposite direction to get as far away from Nineveh and God as possible. And then God, who's clearly not very happy that Jonah's being disobedient, calls up a storm, uh, which makes everybody's life miserable, and then puts Jonah in a whale, which, you know, is kind of like God's naughty step, um, you know, where, where Jonah can have time out, you know, and think about the error of his ways. Um, and of course, Jonah comes to his senses, he apologizes to God, he gets spewed up by the whale, goes to Nineveh, finally, and tells them about God and that they should repent, which they do, and everyone is happily ever after. In essence, you could argue that at its most basic level, Jonah's all about obedience. You know, uh, this could be a reasonable interpretation of the story. Obey God, or you might end up in the belly of a fish or something equivalent. And the reality is you know that you'll have to go and do what it is that God has asked you to do anyway. So it's really much easier if you just do whatever it is that God has asked you to do the first time around. And then everyone will be saved a lot of misery. You know, that's one possible way of looking at the story of Jonah. And, you know, it's, it's quite reasonable. Quite reasonable if that were your conclusion. But is that it? Well, I'm not sure it is, actually. So I don't think that's all of it. Far from being the stuff of children's stories, Jonah is actually, as I said, quite, quite possibly one of the most complex stories in the Bible. And we don't have time to go through it verse by, by, verse, by verse. So I'm just going to share some thoughts with you for you, to, for you to reflect on and for you to consider as we try and get a deeper understanding of what it might be that God is saying to us through this book. And the first is um, chapter one. And it's really like, what kind of book are we reading? What, what book is this? What kind of book is this chapter 1 verse 1 it says this it starts with the word of the Lord came to Jonah the son of Amittai the word of the Lord came to Jonah the son of Amittai and let's just pause here you know this first verse this opening verse tells us something about the kind of book we're reading you know it's a sort of once upon a time tells us a lot about the story we're reading we know we're reading a fairy tale right this is the word of the Lord came to Jonah and if you are familiar with the Old Testament, if you look at any of the books of the prophets in the Old Testament, you know you could pick Micah and Jeremiah and Hosea and Joel, and there are others. They all pretty much begin with the same opening line, the same kind of phrase. The word of the Lord came to so-and-so. And so um, what happens next in the prophets is th then comes a series of prophecies, and they're usually invitations, oftentimes warnings, telling people basically to get back on track with God and stop living the way that they're living. So when we read Jonah chapter 1, verse 1, we naturally think, oh, I know what this is. I, kn I know, I, I'm, I'm familiar with this because I'm so familiar with the Old Testament. I know it inside out, right? I've seen this so many times before. This is, this is a, a book of prophecy. This is a prophecy. This is a book of prophecy. So I'm going to read it through my prophet lenses. In the same way, you know, you look at Psalms, you go, this is poetry, I'll read it through po my poetry lenses. Or this is law, I'll read it through my law lenses. This is, this is prophecy, I'm going to read it through my prophecy lenses. You know, this is a book of prophecy, right? Well, no, actually, it's, it's not. Um, the very first sentence of Jonah, like, throws us completely off track, right from the get-go. Because Jonah is not, a, is not a book of prophecy, 
It's a story about a prophet. And that's actually a really different thing. The book of Jonah is God's word to his people through the story of a prophet. It's a story uh, of a prophet. And to be honest, he's actually not a very nice prophet. He's not a very nice, he's not a very nice guy. You don't, you don't feel kind of like drawn to him. He's not, you know, he's not endearing. You know, we've got this prophet, Jonah, this man of God, this religious guy, but he's the one who's running away from God. Now, that makes no sense. He's running away from God. And as the story unfolds, he's actually the most hard-hearted person in the whole book. You know, that doesn't make a sense either. He's like supposed to be like the man of God, and he's like the most hard-hearted person there. And God has to physically restrain him just to get him back on track onto the mission of God and the call of God and then vomit him out of this fish just to get him to do anything. I mean, it's pretty drastic, the action, you know, steps that God has to take. So the first thing, just from chapter one, is this is God's word to his people through the story of a prophet. Secondly, chapter two, I said it's going to be fast. Um, Chapter two, let's talk about the proverbial elephant in the room. The fish. The fish. Um, any of us who know anything about the story of Jonah knows that it's about a whale or a fish, right? Uh, now, without wishing to cause too much controversy too early on, in my humble opinion, the fish is not the thing. The fish is just not the thing. Um, despite being like the central motif of the way the story may have been told to us, um, even the most famous fish in the Bible only appears like in three sentences. You know, in chapter 1, verse 17, chapter 2, verse 1, chapter 2, verse 10. And so if we make the fish the focus or the main theme of Jonah, there's the possibility that we might run a risk, the risk of missing what this book is actually all about. So there, I've said it. I'll probably get emails, but that's okay. I like emails. Um, All I'm saying is, and this has got nothing to do with Jonah being in, don't mishear me, this has got nothing to do with the possibility of Jonah being in the fish and whether God can actually keep somebody alive in the belly of a fish for three days. Of course he can. He's God, right? So that's a given. All I'm saying is that the purpose of the story isn't to teach us about fish. The purpose of scripture always is to reveal the character of God. The purpose of scripture is to reveal Jesus to us and his character and his purpose and what he's up to in the world. It's what every single book in the Bible is for. Each and every one of them is to reveal God, to reveal Jesus, to reveal his character and to reveal his purposes to us. And so whatever the book of Jonah is about, it's going to be about that. And anything that we may think that the book of Jonah is about that distracts from that, like fish, for example, probably means that we're on the wrong track. So the second thing is that the book of Jonah is all about revealing the nature of God. Okay, let's start and have a look at chapter 3. This is the start of chapter 3, starting in verse 1. 
So then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. This is God like, okay, I'll have to try again. And if you look at the structure of Jonah, it's like chapter one and chapter three are the like mirror images of one another. Like chapter one is this original plot, go and tell the people of Nineveh that they're you know, in the error of their ways. And then suddenly like Jonah derails the plot because he doesn't do what he's supposed to do and he goes off. So God has to come up with this alternative plan. And eventually uh, we get to chapter three and it's like, okay, reset let's try again shall we so chapter one uh, chapter three verse one then the word of the lord came to jonah a second time go to the great city of nineveh please uh, and proclaim to it the, the message i gave you and this time jonah obeys the word of the lord and he goes to nineveh now nineveh was a very large city it took three days to go through it uh, jonah began by going a day's journey into the city proclaiming 40 more days and nineveh will be overthrown and the Ninevites believed God, a fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, stood on sackcloth. Another thing that's just a little, I'm not going to spend too much time on this, another thing that's a bit unusual about Jonah is it's very much like a satirical um, tale. It's told in like a larger-than-life kind of way. It's all, it all, it reads almost like a comic book, and everything's sort of exaggerated, you know, um, everything's super large, super sized. You know, Nineveh is, Nineveh was actually like seven-mile ground. Like the circumference of Nineveh at the time was seven miles. It, it was, you'd have to walk really slowly for it to take four days to get across the thing, right? But everything is like supersized. Everything's really bright and really dynamic. And there's a whole bunch of satire and humor and wit in here. Um, and one of the things that's going on throughout Jonah is the way that the characters behave. And what I mean by that is the people in Jonah, the characters in Jonah, they don't really behave like the way that we would expect them to behave. It's all a little bit topsy-turvy. It's all a little bit upside down. So you've got Jonah, as I said, this man of God, who's in fact the most reluctant and quite possibly ungodly character in the whole book. I mean, even the sailors, you know, the sailors, they come out looking better than Jonah. No, no, they've got, they, they're more faithful than Jonah, and they're just, they're, they're sailors, they're sailors. You know, and then you've got the bad guys, okay? So, you know, and the baddies are supposed to be these heathen pagan sailors that we get in chapter one. And of course, the big bad Ninevites. And the Ninevites are among the most murderous, oppressive people that the planet has ever known up until that point. And yet these brutal and violent people, heinous people, they respond to God and immediately repent and turn to God. Chapter 3, verse 5. The Ninevites believed God, a fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. They even put the animals, they even made the animals fast and put sackcloth on the animals. Such was the extent of their response. Nobody in this story is quite behaving the way that we think that they're going to. And that leads us to chapter 4. And chapter 4 is, is, I think, really the climax of the story and is actually often the part of the story that many of us completely and utterly forget. We just kind of forget it's there, or it feels a bit complicated, or we don't quite know what to do with it, so we just kind of filter it out a little bit. And so um, Jonah has he's delivered his eight-word sermon uh, in chapter 3. Careful. Uh, verse 4, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That's it. You know, an eight-word sermon, you could be pretty lucky. Um, and his sermon goes down really well, by the way. So like there... There, mu there must be a way for it to happen. But Jonah preaches his um, eight, it's actually five words in Hebrew, it's just eight in English, so it's even shorter than you might imagine. Um, 
So he preaches his, his eight-word sermon, which goes down really well. And then Jonah gets seriously angry with God. Like seriously, he's seriously, seriously upset with God and just wants to die. Chapter 4, verse 9. I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. Like that's how angry he is. And the book ends with Jonah kind of railing at God for being too merciful. With Jonah saying, do you know what? I would rather die than live with this kind of God. For Jonah, the fact that God should show forgiveness and mercy to the Ninevites all seems very, 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 very wrong. He's angry, I think, at how effective his own preaching was. I've yet to stumble into that space, but uh, apparently it exists. But you can imagine him praying. Like, you, you know, you can imagine this little chap praying through, like, gritted teeth. What he says in uh, chapter 4, verse 2, 3. Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? You know, that's what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I told you so. I knew it. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love. The God who relents from sending his calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. <laughs> He's awesome. <laughs> what a great guy. You know, Jonah somehow knew that God would find a way to bring his grace and his mercy to his people through repentance. He just knew that somehow this was all going to have a happy, end, a happy ending. And the harsh reality is Jonah doesn't want a happily ever after for his enemies. Jonah is the story that it begins with God looking over his world and God seeing this great, great cause of injustice and oppression and wickedness and so on, the Ninevites. And so God sends his messenger, his agent on earth, to go and confront the wickedness of Nineveh and preach against it. Now, again, just as an aside, I'm guessing, you know, if you're familiar with that section, I'm guessing some of the language in that passage about preaching against the wickedness of a city and this whole thing about God and his wrath and his fierce anger and people uh, perishing or the prospects of people perishing and all that, um, I'm guessing that not all of us feel totally comfortable all of the time with our heart all kind of warm and fuzzy about that kind of language. And the reality is, this is just one of those examples where we struggle with these certain parts of the Bible, particularly the Old Testament, where they depict, or seem to depict, God as being seriously ticked off at all that humanity is doing and of his impending doom and judgment and wrath. And part of the reason for that, in this context, I wonder, it might be because we don't necessarily fully appreciate the way in which Jonah and the Israelites would have viewed the Ninevites. Uh, Nineveh uh, was the capital city of, of this ancient, this vast ancient empire, Assyria. And Assyria, Assyria was the biggest, baddest empire that the ancient world had known up to that point. They were utterly brilliant at taking territories that weren't their own. And they were absolutely brutal in the way that they did it. Uh, this led to the British Museum. Uh, I, I don't really even want to kind of go into what that brutality looked like, but it was brutal. 
And so we really need to understand, I really think we, we need to appreciate the deep emotion the Israelites would have felt when they heard about the Ninevites. And it would have been quite understandable, perhaps, for the, Nin uh, for the Israelites to kind of go, yes, at last, God has seen the injustice of this crazy bunch of people, and they're toast. God's going to come and just roast them. And I think that's the idea. At last, God is going to confront one of the most exceptional injustices, of, uh, one of the most exceptional instances of human injustice that the world had seen up to that point. And so when the Ninevites repent, this all seems very wrong to Jonah. And Jonah's like, hold on, what? Sorry, hold on, what? Wait, what? No, 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 no. This isn't supposed to happen. This isn't what's supposed to happen. This is all very wrong. And then uh, in chapter 4, towards the end of chapter 4, we, we find Jonah outside the city. And he's outside the city and he's just basically waiting. I should be waiting for like Nineveh to be caught. But uh, he's, he's waiting outside, uh, waiting to see what will happen to the city. And he's sitting under the, he's sitting under the shade of this plant that the Lord has provided. And then the Lord withers. And we're all like, this all feels random. Uh, and God comes to Jonah in, verse, in chapter 4, verse 10, and says this. But the Lord says, you have been, because Jonah's concerned about this plant, and he said, the Lord says, you have been concerned about this plant, though you didn't tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have great concern for the city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left? And also many animals. There's so much in this story that just seems to be back to front. Uh, just to end with, and back to our opening question around what's the book of Jonah all about. Well, I don't know about you, if you managed to read it uh, this week, or if you get a chance to read last week, or if you get a chance to read it this week. I don't know about you, but at some point in the story, in rereading the story of Jonah, I realized that I am Jonah. Uh, slowly but surely, I think, as we read this very short book, uh, rather than seeing Jonah as a bit of a comic figure over there, where I'm kind of like, what the heck is he playing at? What on earth is he doing? What an idiot. Something happens as we read it, it certainly did when I read it, and I realized, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm just like that. That's, that's me. Too. You know, I'm Jonah whenever I do whatever I can to resist God's work uh, in my life. I am Jonah when I rail against his mercy shown to those who, quite honestly, I don't think deserve it. I'm Jonah when I realize that the grace and the mercy and the kindness that God has shown the Ninevites, God, through Jesus Christ, has shown to me. Secondly, I think it's about um, God's mercy and God's love for the whole of humanity. Um, the motivation for Jonah criticizing God's grace is pretty you know, understandable to us. And if we were in the same situation as Jonah, that same context, we might possibly be saying the same thing. Jonah clearly thinks that the Ninevites are the worst, most wretched creatures on the planet. Um, but of course, in the story, who's the most hard-hearted person in, in the narrative? And it's, it's actually Jonah. 
And so God is gently trying to get him to see. He's like, Jonah, do you not see what's happening here? I'm paraphrasing and reading between the lines. So you need to go back and check this for yourself. I think God is trying to get Jonah to see, you know, Jonah, do you not see what's happening here? Yes, you are part of God's covenant people, but that doesn't excuse your religious hypocrisy and your sanctimonious, misplaced sense of superiority. You, my friend Jonah, are just as broken, just as misguided, just as lost, just as desperately in need of my mercy and my grace as this is. And of course, God should be as concerned about the Ninevites and their antics as he has been uh, for many. Which leads us to um, a third thing. Jonah's about the gospel. Jonah is pointing ahead. You've got, you've got quite literal references to three days in a tomb. That sort of uh, mirrors somewhere you know, to the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. And where this takes us, you know, if you're thinking of Jonah as a pointing ahead to the gospel, is, um, is to the fact that God loves our enemies. God loves our enemies. God rescues Jonah's enemies, the Ninevites. But if God loves my enemy and forgives my enemy, I really hope he's not expecting me to do the same. You see why I'm like Jonah? And this is one of the most, I think, fundamental core issues of the gospel, the the forgiveness of one's enemies. That's what God is doing for us through Jesus Christ on the cross. This is what Jonah 4, I think, is all about. Jesus put it this way in Luke chapter 6, verse 27 to 28. But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. And, you know, an enemy is, is someone who, like in Jonah's case, it could be a group of people, it could be an individual, could be someone who's wronged you or somebody who's wronged somebody you care about. Um, it might be extended and it might even include people that we just find it really difficult to be around. Um, and we can't kind of deal with them and that could be because of their personality it could be because of the way that they're choosing to live their lives Uh, it could be to do with their political or their theological convictions Uh, and that's okay it's okay that we don't have to necessarily get on uh, like the cuff and fire with everybody it's it's totally okay to find it hard to be around certain people the question is what do we do with all of the emotion that comes up in that moment And what most of us tend to do, I certainly tend to do this, if we're honest, is that I I make those areas that I struggle with the totality of who they are. And that then makes it so much easier for me to keep sort of despising them and not forgiving them. So I kind of create a bit of a caricature. And I think that's what's happening here in Jonah. and, And something that Jesus did all the time was to deconstruct the whole concept of enemies because the reality is and the truth is we are all guilty we are all contributing to the world as it is Uh, Walter Wink and I'm going to close with this idea he calls this the gift of the enemy in his book uh, The Power of Your Food he writes this this is a gift that our enemy 
may be able to bring us to see aspects of ourselves that we cannot discover any other way than through our enemies. Our friends seldom show us our flaws. They're our friends precisely because they are able to overlook or ignore those parts of us. The enemy is therefore not just a hurdle to be leapt over on the way to God. Our enemy might actually be the way to God. We cannot come to terms with our own inner shadows except through our enemies. We have almost no other access to those unacceptable parts of ourselves that need redeeming except through the mirror our enemies hold up to us. He recommends this little exercise. I'm just going to uh, leave it with you. You might want to think about doing this or something along like this, uh, the lines of this this week. Uh, he suggests taking some time to sit in God's presence, uh, have Jonah chapter uh, Jonah open, um, especially Jonah chapter 4 open in one hand and a blank sheet of paper uh, in the other. And then just bring to mind a person that you struggle with, a person you find difficult. And then write down everything it is about them that you find difficult. Just get it all out there. You know, they're selfish, they're arrogant, they don't care about other people, you know, whatever it might be. And then he says, take some time again in God's presence to go through each thing that you've written down and just ask yourself, have I ever been like that? Have I ever behaved like that? And then it's really just a matter of whether we're going to be like Jonah uh, in chapter one. <laughs> or whether we're going to be like Jonah in chapter 2. Which direction are we going to run in? You know, oh, I've never been selfish before, or I've never been arrogant, I've never been careless of other people's needs and thoughts. I think the first step towards us loving our enemies is recognizing our shared humanity and the common brokenness that we all share. And maybe that's what Jonah is all about. Um, why don't you stand? We're going to pray. Let's pray together.